0: talking about my culture, uh, that would affect me very deeply. And I would have to speak up and uh, justify my feelings and my convictions. I think the black man is making a tremendous stride, not only in America, but throughout the world, you know, uh, to uh, be recognized as a man, uh, other than just black, period, just being recognized as a man, you know, because we're brothers regardless of our race, creed, or color. You know, and we're not brothers, then, uh, then we're not humans. Black is a thing that will uh, basically put on a man, uh, on an on a American black man in America. And uh, hey, I'm black and I'm proud, but I really don't want to have to say I'm black and you have to say you're white. I want to say that we're people and that we're brothers and we got the same fight. But now if you step on my toe, then I got to defend myself as a man. Same thing you would have to do.
1: Welcome back. David Penn here. The Professor Penn Podcast, Episode 76. Happy Thanksgiving, the 23rd of November, 2023. A holiday. It's in the evening. I hope you had a good day with your family or a good day meditating by yourself. Uh, We started out with uh, James Brown, That's soul brother number one. We played some of his music on the last podcast. This man was important in the 1960s and 70s to the identity of our country. At the time, because I was there, his message seemed to be directed towards the African-American community. And, you know, I'm black and I'm proud. But if you listen to that again, if you can go back and play it again, he's talking about we're all brothers, if we're humans. He's talking about be a man, be a man. And uh, that's a theme that, uh, it's an important theme. Uh, You know, masculinity is an important concept for both men and women to to delve into and to to look at. And these culture-bound norms about masculinity and femininity They're part of culture, and culture is always changing. Sometimes culture changes for the good. Sometimes it changes for the bad. In a democracy where people have the vote, the vote, and remember, our country is a republic because our founding fathers understood that a democracy could be nothing more in the end than a mob. They wanted to have uh, an informed populace and a process through which a divinely inspired outcome was the result of politics. What we have now, through a couple hundred years of lessening those guardrails, they're not all gone, but many of them have been removed for good reasons and for ill reasons. Everything has two sides to it. We now have a situation where we take votes, elections, And we vote for things, and because they pass, they're ratified by the people, we're led to believe that that's necessarily good because the people want it. Well, you know what the people want? The people want to kill each other. The people want to do a lot of things that are not good for people, for humans. So just because a vote ratifies an idea does not mean that idea is moral or good. Culture is evolving. And what we're doing here on Free People Radio is seeking the truth together because we want a just outcome. And of course, it's a series of outcomes, there's never a final result. It's an ongoing evolution of human culture and of human beings. It's beautiful if we make it beautiful. We're thanking Free People Radio for giving us this platform. Always go to precinctstrategy.com, take a look at what Dan Schultz has built, it's a tutorial to get in the game. And you know, after the 80% of the people that decided that voting was not worth their time in the last election, only 20% of the people showed up. And of course, I have my friends in the election integrity section that say, how do you know that? We don't know. We're going on what we're being told. And what we're being told is only 20% of the people voted. You know, if 100% of the people voted, we'd know. I'm not even gonna, you know, embarrass my young producer here and ask him if he voted because he's not gonna to want to tell me yes or no. It's none of my business. But you can do a self, an inventory of yourself. Did you go vote? Do you know what's going on in your local neighborhood? Because if we're going to save our freedom, if we're gonna preserve our freedom, our God-given rights to life and the unalienable rights to life, to liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We got to know what's going on. We need to be an informed populace, as President Eisenhower said in the last podcast, we need to be a you know an informed populace that makes its will the outcome. And what do we want? Well, it's Thanksgiving. You know what? Can you please turn on the timer? It's not on. I'm going to completely get unmoored. Thank you. Now we're going to run over by... Nas- I got a bonus. I got four or five minutes of bonus time now. Hey, it's Thanksgiving night. Come on, it's a holiday. What else are we going to do tonight at, you know, nine o'clock when this is supposed to end? We're going to run over a little bit. That's central time for those of you that, you know, are uh, perfectionists. You know, Thanksgiving... There's so much to give thanks for. I have so many memories I want to talk about. Memories like I remember James Brown. You know, there's some people in the audience that remember James Brown, but most of the people... Do you even know who James Brown is? See, now my young producer shaking his head. We've got these cultural icons that are being lost because culture does not record and continuously refresh their contribution to our American history. President Kennedy, it's the assassination anniversary this week. The The murder of a president was not a happy Thanksgiving that year, you might imagine. People were very unhappy. And people really don't understand President Kennedy's, the four martyrs, President Kennedy and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy Jr., uh, senior we and we got Bobby Kennedy Jr. running now. Please let's remember that this is a political dynasty in the Kennedy family. But we had these four martyrs in the 60s. And we've lost the cultural insight into what these martyrs brought to our lives today. I mean we don't we have to figure out I want to know. I'm gonna make a nice step because that's a kind of veiled should statement where I was heading there. We have to have and should, same thing. I want to. I want to know how and why I think the things I think. You know, I'm watching on social media. Oh, the anti-Semitism is just rocking. I'm There's a guy on my feed, Stu Peters. I, you know, I don't know who this guy is. He ran a piece with um, Kanye West that I saw this morning before I came in, and the interviewer was trying to elicit from Kanye West that there was a difference between what he referred to as Ginos, Jews in name only, and religious and observant Israelites, that there was a difference. And he said, do you see a difference? And Kanye said, nope, they're all the same to me. You know, we have the free will to hate or to love. Let's leave the Christian part out of it for a moment. The benefit of hating And the benefit of loving, let's put them on a scale. What is my personal benefit of hating or judging or labeling? The benefit is, uh, you know, I don't know what the benefit is because it's a cognitive distortion. My brain is not functioning well when I'm hate-filled. You know, that's like, uh, what was that? There's a line It's, uh, you know, hating other people, you're really poisoning yourself. It's creating a a negative chemical cascade in your own body. You're really not affecting the people you're hating. You're poisoning yourself with hate. That's why wrath is one of the deadly sins, because it kills you. I mean, it's just just a biological fact that our immune system uh, does not work as well when we're caught up in wrath and hate. Love. That's the other polarity. You know, this is something that has been given to us as an ideal, as something to strive for, to love your neighbor as yourself. So look at all this anti-Semitism, and here we are, it's Thanksgiving. I just think to myself, what are these anti-Semites thinking? Now, I am going to agree that there are cultural Jews that are subscribing to materialist pursuits that can be identified as being contrary. Their ideology and their efforts are contrary to the goals, dreams, and aspirations of many of the American people, and I agree with that. They're materialists. They're Darwinists. They're not practicing as an Israelite, as a Jew. They're not, that's not who they are. But when someone just takes and broad brushes the whole group like that, well, what are we forgetting? We're forgetting Jesus was Jewish, Paul was Jewish, Peter was Jewish, the whole family was Jewish. They're Jewish, they're fulfilling Jewish prophecy. And we can go through all the different, I mean I read, I know all the different the Abrahamic blessings and then you know, Noah and every there's all the but these people that are the bedrock of our culture, we're Jewish. I don't understand the hate because it's self-hate. We're hating ourselves. And to ascribe to the Jewish people some kind of conspiratorial superiority, this is crazy. There are so many groups vying for control of the New World Order. If there is an international Zionist conspiracy, of which I am not a member. You know, I'm on the other side of the football, if there is one, and I can see where people see that. But what about the international Saudi conspiracy, the international Chinese conspiracy, the international globalist conspiracy, the international Turkish conspiracy? You know, there's the international Iranian conspiracy, the international Russian conspiracy. All these groups are vying, vying, competing for their seat at the table. So the demonization of a specific group, and there is deserved criticism. I'm not arguing with that. But the demonization of a group in total, this is a thought form that human beings can wake up from. It is not in our best interests to hate Or to label, or to judge. And if we're going to operationalize in our lives the precepts that have been given to us, because the same people, many of the same people that are demonizing the Jews, they're professing to be Christians. What happened to judge not, lest you be judged? Let's learn how to talk to each other in a way that opens up the possibility of peace. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, thank you for creating the heavens and the earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, thank you for restoring strength to the weary. Forgive us, Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, our King, for we have willfully transgressed, for you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, who is gracious and ever willing to forgive. You know, something in that uh, creation myth, when James Brown talks about being recognized as a man, being recognized as a man. Now, I know there's women watching, and good evening and happy Thanksgiving to you. And, you know, who am I? I'm not qualified to talk about the experience of women. I'm only an observer. I'm here to talk about the experience of being a man. And I know that I am striving to be a man, and I'm a man of, I'm not of advanced years, I'm still capable, but I'm not young anymore. And I look back at the years of my life, and it's taken me 35 years to go from being blessed to know God to actually know Him, to have a relationship with Him, to when I'm actually willing to put down sin in my life and struggle with it with all that I have. 35 years, boy, it seems like a long time. You know what? There, This is an illusion. I've only ever been in the present. And within the scope of infinite time, 35 years is but a blink of an eye. It has taken me some time to muster the energy to develop the integrity and the the strength to take on the mantle of what God has asked me to do. And I fall short, and that's why I say, Forgive us, Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, God and King of all worlds, for we have willfully transgressed. For you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, who is gracious and ever willing to forgive. That's the world I live in, and I think it's the world we all live in. If we would but judge not, lest we be judged. First step. Because there is a Master, a King of all worlds, who is capable of judging all of us also in the blink of an eye. But God is so patient and so kind in giving me so much time to get it together. And here on Thanksgiving Day I want to thank God for giving me this time and this audience and this opportunity because this is a a strange dynamic. I know people don't really talk about this in podcast land very much, but this really ups the game of the people that have the audacity and the narcissistic belief in themselves to actually appear before other people in this way publicly. It takes a certain kind of mental perspective to do this. And if you take yourself seriously, it encourages the greatest beneficiary of this process and i'm trying to make a community and we want everybody to benefit and as you know many of you i'm communicating with you but i'm getting the greatest benefit because i am getting the opportunity to up my game or to refine my energy or to develop my thinking do my research it's it's making me whole and particularly for me because i'm not a particularly materialist person i'm not judging myself based on my financial success. Just not even just a criteria doesn't even come into my mind. Whoa, I want to thank you, my audience. I want to thank you for spending time with me and communicating with me and sharing energy with me and building a community together. It's a great blessing in my life and I have deep thanksgiving for the opportunity to do it. So may you have a blessed Thanksgiving. Uh, but there's violence. There's violence in our world. Even on a day of Thanksgiving. Let us hope we get a day violence-free today. Of course, I'm recording this before Thanksgiving plays out. I hope we have a peaceful and wonderful day worldwide. There's a truce in Gaza. They've stopped killing each other temporarily. Temporarily. you got to take whatever you can get. I thank God for the momentary truce. Maybe it'll spread. Who knows? One can hope. But we really have the seeds of deep division in our society. And let's just take a look at a clip. Elliot, can you play this clip from Madison?
2: New at 10. Wisconsin's governor is calling a march by neo-Nazis through downtown Madison truly revolting. Nearly two dozen members of the group walked along State Street towards the Wisconsin State Capitol before ending up at James Madison Park. Police monitored the march, saying a Facebook post they don't, quote, support hateful rhetoric, but that the department has an obligation to protect First Amendment rights. The Midwest chapter of the Anti-Defamation League urged communities to do more to stop anti-Semitism, saying in a statement, now is the time to speak out against anti-Semitism, extremism, and hate, and take the necessary actions to ensure Jews feel and are safe.
1: Well, let me just say, Jews do not feel safe, and they are not safe. So, you know, this is a unrealistic goal. But it sounds great, and... um I never understood the word neo associated with Nazis. If they're walking along with swastikas, they're Nazis, or at least on somebody's payrolls, they're on someone's payroll to act like they're Nazis. And I've said this, and I'm going to keep saying it. You know, the, the uniforms that the Nazis used during World War II from 33 to 45, you know, these uniforms were stylish. I mean, really stylish. So when I see these guys walking along in red T-shirts, who's ever bankrolling this thing, hey, give them some money so they can get some stylish costumes. It really takes away from the event when you look like a clown. But that being said, it does reveal that there are deeply divisive forces in our society. And guess what? There's violence in our society. And when violence is in the people well where do the elected representatives come from because i keep saying that's political theater that's not even where the action is the actions with the lawyers and the and the people that you know have the money and these these people that we elect well they're playing roles let's take a look at this biggest governmental brawls brawls in in the in government it's really kind of fun to watch
3: speaking of battles the one that you just saw in the Taiwanese Parliament is just an example one instance lawmakers around the world have a history of losing their cool inside the Parliament and we thought this would be a good opportunity to show you some there's even a term for these political brawls it's called legislative violence we put together some of the most infamous instances of legislative violence
1: Kind of looks like a mosh pit. These guys are actually fighting. Not very effectively, I might add. Here's another mosh pit. This is a pure theater. It's such an erudite conversation. These are our elected leaders, elected. We the people. It's really impressive, isn't it? That's good enough, thank you. You know, (laughs) be a man, right? Uh, A man, go back to the creation myth. There are certain responsibilities in being a man. The first responsibility of a man is to love the Lord our God with all my heart and all my soul and all my might. That's the first and the greatest responsibility. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. A man develops the ability to go to war Develops the ability to kill, de- develops the ability to give up his life to protect his family, his neighborhood, his country, and his faith. He develops that ability and then prays that his sword never comes out of its scabbard. So, for all the people that are talking about peace and they are not willing to die and do not have the skills to fight. That's one expression. But a man who is capable of fighting and is willing to fight and then pursues peace, that's a man. To hold your tongue. You know, there's a biblical verse... um, It's harder to subdue your tongue than it is to subdue a city. Think before we talk. That's being a man. Boy, that's a challenge, particularly when some people will say anything and there's no recourse. So, being a man is a big responsibility, and that's what James Brown was talking about. Be a man, develop as a man. That's what we want to do as men. We want to develop our masculinity so that we defend, so we protect, so we shield, so we cover, and we pray that we will not have to be violent. Because look at how silly this looks. And that's before we get to real violence, like in our own Congress. February 15, 1798, you'll like this one, Federalist Congressman Roger Griswold of Connecticut attacked Democrat-Republican Party Representative Matthew Lyon of Vermont, with a hickory walking stick in the chambers of the House of Representatives. Griswold struck Lyon repeatedly about the head, shoulder, and arms, while Lyon attempted to shield himself from the blows. Lyon then turned and ran to the fireplace, took up a pair of metal tongs, and having armed himself, returned to the fight. Griswold then tripped Lyon and struck him in the face while he lay on the ground, at which point the two were separated. That's a fight, man. When you're fighting with clubs, you're trying to kill each other. It's not a scrum with a bunch of people just kind of milling around and, you know, masquerades as a fight. These two people were fighting in the House of Representatives. These were men that decided that what was going on was worth killing over or dying over. Here's another one like that. Well, you're going to like this one. 4 December 1837, you know, a long time ago. John Wilson, the speaker of the Arkansas, or as they said in those days, Arkansas House of Representatives and president of the Arkansas Real Estate Bank, stabbed a representative, J.J. Anthony, to death during a legislative dispute on the floor of their chamber. Killed him. Okay, killed him. In the House of Representatives in the state of Arkansas. That's a fight. Oh, here's a great one. 22 May, 1856. History. You can go look it up. I mean, it's cool. History is cool. You know, the history of masculinity in our Congress. Congressman Preston Brooks of South Carolina famously assaulted Charles Sumner of Massachusetts Charles Sumner had given a speech saying Brooke's cousin, Senator, it's a senator, Andrew Butler of, here we go again, South Carolina. There's something about South Carolina. This is what he said about this South Carolinian. Quote, took a mistress who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him, though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight, I mean the harlot of, slavery. Now, at that time, abolitionists frequently used sexual imagery when discussing slavery because the allegation was the slave owners, their part of their benefit was, was uh, you know, sexual rights with the slaves. And that's not untrue. But this guy didn't like it, Preston Brooks. So they got down. I mean, they had a brutal fight. And uh, listen to this. This is great. As Sumner began to stand up, Brooks began beating Sumner severely on the head with a thick cane with a gold head. And before he could reach his feet, Sumner was knocked down and trapped under a heavy desk. But Brooks continued to bash Sumner until he ripped the desk from the floor. By this time, Sumner was blinded by his own blood. And he staggered up the aisle. This would be of our Congress. Staggered staggered up the aisle. And he collapsed unconscious. But Brooks, this is, you know, male behavior, because, you know, he was gapped out, right? Continued to beat the unconscious Sumner. He was trying to beat him to death, right? Until he broke this king with the gold head. He broke it over this dude's head. This is a fight, right? And then he quietly left the chamber. His work was done. Probably figured he killed the guy. Several other senators were attempting to help Sumner, but they were blocked by another legislator, a guy named Keat, who had jumped up into the aisle brandishing a pistol and shouted, let them be. In other words, let this murder continue. This Keat, on February 5th, 1858, he had another legislative violent incident. He started a massive brawl in the House during a tense late night debate. This is really funny. I got to read. This is great. This, this is the other side of being men. Sometimes it's just ridiculous. The large brawl involved approximately 50 elected representatives and only ended when a missed punch upended the hairpiece of Representative William Barksdale of Mississippi. The embarrassed Barksdale accidentally replaced the wig back on his head backwards, causing both sides in the fight to erupt into spontaneous laughter. Hey, ceasefire. It was a funny way to end the battle. Here's a great one. February 24, 1887, the Indiana General Assembly experienced a massive brawl between Democrats and Republicans in the Indiana Senate. I mean, this is you know, this is our elected... When we have deep divisions in our country and people hate each other and then we elect representatives and they go into the House or they go into the Senate and we think they're our best and our brightest, that they're developed, that they're going to be open, that they're going to talk, that they're going to find some kind of way to move us forward. Now, what do they do? They beat each other to death. It's great, isn't it? Well... January 6, 2023, in the midst of the lengthy 2023 House Speaker election, Representative Mike Rogers was restrained by Representative Richard Hudson when Rogers attempted to lunge at Representative Matt Gates. Now, I'm going to play this. Now, we just have these uh, uh, written uh, histories where people were beating each other to death And then I played these scrums, which are really not fights. It's show and tell. Well, now let's look at a couple of modern, today, examples of men, men, confronting each other. And let's look at their masculinity. Play this piece with Mullen. We're just going to play a little bit of this. This is a senator from Arkansas, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, who I think, well, judge for yourself. Play play senator mullin
4: here this is a time this is a place if you want to run your mouth we can be two consenting adults we can finish it here
1: okay that's fine perfect
4: you want to do it now i'd love to do it right now well stand your butt up then
5: you stand your butt up
4: oh hold it oh guy. stop it is that right. your solution?
6: Right. Every no no sit down right, you're a clown. sit down okay.
2: Okay.
6: Yeah, no, you're okay. a united states senator sit down, oh, okay sit down please
2: all right can I respire, Mr. Hold, hold it, it.
6: Hold it. If Hold we can, on. no, I have the mic. I'm sorry. This is Hold what, what he said. You'll have your time.
1: Okay. Can you stop Very it just small. for a no. second? Now, when you watch this, think theater. Don't think politics. Don't think Senate. Think, you know, we're in a Broadway theater in New York City and we're watching a play. Please continue. No, you can't.
6: <laughs> this is a hearing. And God knows the American people have enough of contempt. But Congress, let's I don't like drugs and
4: bullies. You not
5: like you, because you just it. described yourself.
4: Hold it. Then let's do this. Because I did challenge you and I accepted your challenge and you went quiet.
5: No, I didn't go quiet. I was, well, I was well, the, no, no, you hold challenged on. me to a cage match, no, no, acting no, no, like no, a twelve sir. year old school no, no, bully.
6: Excuse sir,
2: me, hold, hold on. it. No, excuse me. i, have I mic. will say I will say Mr. exactly Senator Mullen,
6: saying. I have the mic. You have questions on any economic issues, anything that's like go for it. We're not here to talk about physical abuse. You brought we're not talking yet. about. Fu- of course, and, I and let me you, let me
4: show you his hearing because I want to I want to expose this thug to who he is. And You're not point you, to me. that's disrespectful. Right. I don't care about respecting you at all. I, respect I don't respect you I respect. at all. So hold
2: it. Hold it. No, you don't want to the most. Elite place people. Place that's place good. Place
1: you. Thank you. Do you get the flavor of this? I mean, this is uh, a joke, right? Very very manly, these guys, sitting up. You know, if there's going to be a fight, the senator's going to get up. An old 76-year-old Bernie Sanders is not going to restrain him. He's going to go over there, pull out his cane with the gold top on it, and beat that teamster to death. But that's not what's going to happen. They're going to act. They're acting. Let's look at some more acting. Some fake masculinity. Watch this one. This one's great. This is uh, when they were fighting over McCarthy, and Matt Gates was causing all this uh, hullabaloo, you know, young man. Very brave. And, uh, oh, here comes Senator Mike Rogers, excuse me, Representative Mike Rogers. Look at him. He's, oh, they got to pull him back. Oh, my goodness, anything could happen. And here comes Speaker McCarthy. Oh, he's going back. He's going back. Fantastic, isn't it? Unbelievable. Oh, look at him. He's lunging at him. Oh, it's dangerous. That's danger right there. Danger. Danger. Okay. If I sound sarcastic, it's because I am. If you're not going to be violent, don't act like you're going to be violent. If you're not going to kill someone, Control your tongue. Control, I mean, control is the wrong word. Grow, Grow up, okay? Be a man. Be a man. Don't fake being a man. And we as the American people, we're electing these people. We need to be men and vet these people. And how do we do that? By becoming delegates, taking 24 hours once a year, one day a year, to go to a convention, to look at the candidates and decide who's got a brain and a heart. You know, like the Wizard of Oz. You know the the lion? He needed courage, right? The tin man? The tin man, he wanted feelings, right? And the scarecrow, he wanted a brain. It was an allegory. You gotta have a heart. You have to have some feelings. You gotta have a brain. You gotta be able to think. And you have to have some courage. And courage doesn't mean fighting inappropriately. It means having the courage to do and speak and act with authority. And I'm getting that opportunity to work on that with you, and you're getting that opportunity to work on it with me. And we can demand that of our leaders if we but give 24 hours a year to being a delegate. Because when we don't do that, we get putzes like this. Now let me just tell you, Mike Rogers, just to let you know who this clown is and what a clown he is, because we're looking at the swampiest swamp creature in the swamp. Mike Rogers currently serves as the chairman, the top dog of the House Armed Services Committee. This guy is the Number one player on about eh, two to three trillion bucks a year. They say it's a trillion, but you put in all the research and all the black bag money, it, you know, it's way more than a trillion. Who knows how much? We don't know, as we're going to come to in a minute. Nobody knows, which is another kind of scam. Mike Rogers from Alabama, American lawyer and politician serving in the U.S. Congress from Alabama's 3rd Congressional District since 2003. He is the top guy with his hand on the money spigot. So, of course, he's acting like he's pissed at Matt Gates. because guess what Matt Gates is saying? Turn the faucet off! So he acts like a tough guy. And just to let you know what you find when you start looking around, because this guy, Mike Rogers, is a neocon. He's a war hawk. There's another guy named Mike Rogers. He lives in Michigan. Michigan. And the Democrat Senator there, Debbie Stabenow, another swamp creature in Uni Party extraordinaire, a dandy, she resigned. She's getting old. So the Republican National Senatorial Committee, that would be the RNC, found a dude named Mike Rogers to run for her seat as a Republican. And who is Mike Rogers? See, this is the problem we got in our country. This Mike, there's two of them, like two evil twins. This Mike Rogers in Michigan is a former member of Congress, an officer in the U.S. Army, and an FBI special agent. He is a sought-after expert on national security issues, intelligence affairs, and cybersecurity policy. He serves multiple boards, you know, like Nikki Haley, couple, two, three hundred thousand a year for doing nothing. And academic institutions like Nikki Haley, trustee of Clemson, working to enhance America's strength and security through arms, through, you know, fighting. Oh, that really gets you strong, doesn't it? It's easier to subdue a city than it is to subdue your tongue. Look at these children. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm going to try to stay in an upbeat mood. Do you know that tonight, after the show, or even during the show, you can go to freepeopleradio.com. The store is open. We would love to see you regale yourself in a Godspeed t-shirt or in a kitchen apron or get a mug. Support the broadcast, support what we're doing here, and thank you very much for doing so. And I'm going to say I'm not going to do a Target live read today. But I'm going to say, this Target thing, as we get this rolling, this is the coolest thing conservative media has ever had. All of the people that you and I listen to will benefit from your patronage of Target because we're going to share the profit that you give us with all the people that you are listening to for information. We, you know, I wish we could just not need money. But as as a matter of fact, we do. Every one of us is scraping to keep this thing going. Now, of course, if you want to go to work for Fox News, hey, you got the mass market and Pfizer and, you know, all the drug companies in the military industrial complex, they're all advertising on there. It's great. They don't have to worry about it. You know, the Mark Levins of the world. They're on a network. You know, that network is supporting the uni party. They're selling the military. They're selling the medical industrial complex. So there's a ton of money there. Isn't that a straight deal? But here we are. We're seeking the truth, and we're saying, why are we really spending our money like this? So, of course, we're on the hustings. We're on the outside looking in, and we really are asking for your support. Now, why are we doing this? Why are we fighting? This is a very critical thing to think about. Can you play this piece and stop at 2.30, Uh there you go. Thank you so much.
7: The Economist writes... Knowing that America would abandon Europe, Mr. Putin would have an incentive to fight on in Ukraine and to pick off former Soviet countries such as Moldova or the Baltic states. Without American pressure, Israel is unlikely to generate an internal consensus for peace talks with the Palestinians, calculating that Mr. Trump does not stand by his allies. Japan and South Korea could acquire nuclear weapons by asserting that America has no global responsibility to help deal with climate change. Mr. Trump would crush efforts to slow it. And he is surrounded by China hawks who believe confrontation is the only way to preserve American dominance. Caught between a deal-making president and his warmongering officials, China could easily miscalculate over Taiwan with catastrophic consequences. Talk to me about how much less safe America is with that vision of the new global order. America is much
8: less safe right now. Uh-huh. I think that this has always been shaped in the context of a political story. What's going to happen if he wins? This is a national security story right now. He is a threat right now. He is threatening people in America. He is validating our enemies. And he is the leader of what I've called the American insurgency. It's a social movement that seeks to reverse the election, overthrow the government, and install him as as the leader. That is happening right now. Every day he's out in the streets. He's posting social media. He is disrupting our, 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 our civilization. He is an immediate national security threat that the national security apparatus is thinking about. I think we look at this, what happens if he wins? What happens if he's out and doing this for the next 11 months? I think that is the more immediate threat. We've got to move that bar closer back because he's got, at the end of the day, millions of people who are angry with guns who will do what he says. Stop it, please.
1: You know, sometimes these people just let out the truth. Trump is being looked at by the national security agencies, whoever this guy is. And, you know, millions of people with guns, yes. I'm not going to pick up a gun because Donald Trump says pick up a gun, and he's never said pick up a gun. This is MSNBC. This is the home of the liberals. This is the railhead of the New World Order, of globalism, of the post-World War II Democrat-Liberal Order. This is what their viewership is hearing, that we, the American people, are the enemy. You know it's it's actually just stunning that what they're proposing here to me a critical thinker is that a man who presided over 4 years of peace is a threat to world peace. You know you have to look at the history to make a prediction about the future. Now I have a memory. I remember before Donald Trump won the first time They were saying, oh, if Donald Trump wins, we're going to have a world war. You know, he's going to destroy the world. What did he do? We didn't fight a war. And he pushed through the Abrahamic Accords in the Middle East, which is a giant peace initiative and peace framework to get the Middle East out of the last 75 years of continuous conflict. But here, these people are peddling this, and people are listening to this, and people are believing it. They're believing that you and I have guns, and we're going to come out of our house and start blasting away. No, 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 no. What we're going to do is we're going to get involved in politics. This is what they're really afraid of, that their message is falling apart, that the contradictions that they're peddling are being exposed by podcasts like the Professor Penn podcast, that the truth, the search for truth, is revealing their lies. So what do they do? They demonize. They label. They judge. They do everything that is disharmonious, and then they blame it on me. So what I have to do is keep my center, thank God for a Thanksgiving Day, not be judgeful, not be vengeful, and just realize that these are the musings of people who realize that they're scammed is being exposed. Let's go to the next one. Let's go to Argentina, which has been a leftist country since before World War II. Leftist, I mean leftist. Let's take a look. They had a presidential election down there, and for some reason, and that reason would be the people have had enough. Look at all these people in the streets. They elected a Trump-like populist Let's take a look at this, and we'll stop at
4: 3.15. The explosion is coming, they sang in triumph. And here it is, Javier Millet, libertarian, iconoclast, Trump wannabe, president-elect of Argentina, voted in by a landslide.
7: La situación de Argentina es crítica. Los cambios que nuestro país necesita son drásticos. No hay lugar para gradualismo, no hay lugar para la tibieza, no hay lugar para medias
1: There's no room for gradualism.
4: With inflation at 140%, growing poverty, and the left-wing Peronists in power for 16 of the last 20 years, people voted for one thing, un cambio, a change.
0: I think
1: Argentina needed a change. I voted for Millet because we a change. I want a change for my country. The
4: losing candidate, the current finance minister, Sergio Massa, conceded and wished Millet luck. He'll need it.
1: That's good, thank you. Uh, they have um, paper ballots in Argentina. They hand-count them. And the uh, results of the election were announced one after... One hour after the polls closed. Just a fact. Now Millay is not kidding around. This guy, this guy is a lone wolf. he did it on his own. And uh, let's just play this piece, this next piece, and I'll translate. This is fantastic.
4: Al zurdo de mierda, you can't no give le a shit about what mil- they're is you, in the world and say
1: s**t.
7: They're all collectivists, why do mierda you mierda call ya. them s**t? Because
1: they are s**t. Sh- o sea,
7: no, pero es que si pensás, pero si distinto te van, te van a aniquilar. liquidar. Ese es el punto. Es decir, vos
1: al zurdo no le podés dar un milímetro,
7: a porque le das un milímetro
1: y inch. lo tomas para destrozar. Es decir, vos give give inch, usar, o sea, sea, vos no podés negociar con el zurdo. No se negocia, no se negocia con esa mierda, no se negocia porque te van a llevar puesto.
5: Y como estamos siendo tan
6: mejores con
1: ellos, como los estamos aplastando en la
7: batalla cultural, nos estamos pasando de arriba, porque no solo le ganamos el apoyo, somos superiores moralmente,
4: somos superiores estéticamente, superior. somos mejores en todo. Y les duele,
1: les duele. Entonces, como
7: no pueden pelear con las herramientas legítimas, las, se apalancan en el aparato represivo del Estado, poniendo torres de guita
1: para hacernos mierda. Y we'll aún así money, no pueden, no pueden. Tuvieron que losing. bajar la
7: nota. Tuvieron que bajar la nota. You understand? They're losing. They're, losing. They're, They're desperate. they are
1: losing the cultural war. For the, for the first, first time ever, the left are cornered. Well, this is a guy who got elected, and he's obviously not pulling his punches. We're getting honest. You know, things that we were afraid to say. Like I'm saying, be a man. We have to learn what it is to be masculine. We have to be men. This guy looked at the situation. He did a very lone wolf campaign with almost no money. He really was creative. I mean, he used to dress up in costumes, and everywhere he went, he kept a chainsaw with him to say how he was going to cut government spending, and he got elected in a landslide, a landslide. So why are we fighting? Why are we fighting? Can you pop up this debt clock just for a second? Take a look at this. Anybody can go and see the debt clock. That is on your browser right now if you put in usdebtclock.org. Watch the bill run up. We're heading towards $34 trillion. But what I want to direct your attention to, and it's hard to see, is new entries that they've made at the bottom of the debt clock, in the lower left-hand corner, which you can put see now there, Ellie is putting his. Can can you read what that says? I mean, I, the first one says what? What does that say? Small business, Small business assets, which is how much? Eighteen trillion. What's the next one? Company assets. What's that one? Twenty-two trillion. Household assets, one hundred seventy-nine trillion. The total assets of the country. $220 trillion. This was not on the debt clock previously. So we've got modern monetary theory. Some group, I didn't research it, but I would be suspicious who's putting this up here. They're saying that we're $34 trillion in debt against $220 trillion of assets. Not a big deal. Hey, got a long way to go. Our debt to equity is insignificant. That's what they're saying. But the impli- why we're fighting is the implicit message is the collateral for that debt, which is almost $34 trillion, is my net worth. It's your net worth. It's your future Social Security and Medicare. They're telling you on this debt clock that when that debt gets high enough, They're taking those assets. That's why we're fighting. That's why Millet was elected in Argentina, because the people had had a belly full of it. They'd had enough of it. Government spending with no control. And let me tell you, that's right here in our country. Let's talk about unaccountable. Unaccountable. Play 54 seconds of Donald Rumsfeld on The 10th of September, 2001, that would be the day before 9-11.
6: Fail to adapt. And the fact that they can fail and die is what provides the incentive to survive. But governments can't die. So we need to find other incentives for bureaucracy to adapt and improve. The technology revolution has transformed organizations across the private sector. But not ours not fully not yet we are as they say uh, tangled in our anchor chain our financial systems are decades old according to some estimates we cannot track two point three trillion dollars in transactions we cannot share information from floor to floor in this building that's good because enough. it's
1: this was a press conference that rumsfeld gave the day before 9-11. Remember 9-11? Do you remember 9-11? You remember 9-11. You were what? Were you even born in 9-11? What are you, like one year old? Two years old? Three years old. A distant memory. I remember watching the planes hit the towers. See, this is how culture goes. It diffuses. It loses its oomph over time. In today's dollars, what Secretary of Defense, that was our Secretary of Defense at the time of 9-11, Donald Rumsfeld. What he was saying to the American people was that $4 trillion in today's money had just disappeared. Poof, up in smoke. Couldn't find it. And then, you know, the next day, a plane slammed into the Pentagon and burned out their record section where they were doing this audit. I don't know. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm just saying that's what happened. Now, this hit just keeps on hitting. Let's play this current thing from today.
3: Another year gone by, another Pentagon audit failed. The Defense Department's taking a sizable chunk of your paycheck. However, it's unable to prove how it's actually spending those tax dollars. Tom Dempsey explains what auditors found or didn't find in its annual evaluation of the Pentagon's budget. Tom, you would think this much money, most Americans, we can't do anything about it. But we we are demanding answers.
1: Stop, please. Oh, yes, we can do Shut up, lady. Uh, I'm sorry. You're just uninformed. Or maybe you're on the payroll. We can do everything about it. We just need to become delegates. This is brainwashing of the highest. Nothing we can do about this. She's in the stage. We're about to tell you about a massive problem, but I'm pre-programmed to know I can't do anything about it. This is not true. We can do everything about this by being involved in politics, becoming delegates, and just voting. Like the next election, 100% of the American people could vote. Let's continue and hear about this horror.
2: Of money we're talking about here, Adrian. For the sixth year in a row now and counting, the Pentagon has failed its yearly audit. Look, the Department of Defense has around $4 trillion in assets. We're talking about weapons and other supplies. But this audit report found that around half of those assets can't be accounted for uh, federal government agencies face yearly audi- audits as determined by federal law and look uh the, the pentagon like i said has failed six years in, in a row according to the department of defense the pentagon passed seven of its 29 sub audits this year the department of defense makes up more than half of all u.s discretionary spending and Auditing the Pentagon can be tough due to the department's size and scope, but with government spending continuing to be under a microscope as Congress works to pass a long-term deal and address the debt ceiling, criticism rolled in about this audit finding. Republican House Majority Whip Tom Ember posted to social media, quote, government agencies need to be held to the same standard as any business in America. This is unacceptable. Meantime, Alabama...
1: So here's our uh, congressional... Representative Tom Emmer, he recognizes that uh, there's a huge problem, so why not just jump in and say government agencies need to be held to the same standard as any business in America? This is unacceptable. Okay, we're done with this, and let me tell you what he's saying here. What he's saying is the obvious, but what he's not giving you is the color, the punchline. They failed the audit at the Pentagon. Half the assets are unaccounted for. Does anybody in the audience have an idea about what might be going on here? They got $4 trillion of assets on the books. $2 trillion of those assets are unaccounted for. Does that make anybody pause and go, huh? Well. I'm just going to take a moment. It's Thanksgiving. Let's thank God for Thanksgiving. And while we're thanking God, God, where are those assets? Let me share with you, because I've been blessed to own a business since I've been 19. Doesn't mean I'm going to own it next year. I could go out of business. But, you know, we have to take at the end of the year what's called an inventory. It's an audit. We're audited because we have a bank. And the bank wants to see what's called an audited statement. They want to know that the money they've given my company can be accounted for. Well, for the Pentagon, who's the bank? That'd be me. I am the bank. You are the bank. My young producer, Elliot, is the bank. Our taxes, we are giving that money to our government. steward wisely and half of the assets of the Pentagon for the sixth year in a row are unaccounted for. And we saw this was going on back in 2001. So for the last 22 years the assets cannot be accounted for. Well that's a nice way of saying the assets have disappeared. Where do these assets go? Are they lost? Did a tank just disappear or a plane just disappear or a bunch of rounds just disappear? I own a business. You know, generally when we count inventory and the inventory is not there, somebody stole it. It didn't roll away by itself. You know, we're in the tire business. The tires didn't just roll out the door. No. Somebody that works for me in their great hierarchy of needs, have decided that thou shalt not steal does not apply to them for whatever reason they've come up with, and they steal the inventory. Now, I do want to say, because I have a very good friend and business partner who is running the inventory now, I've actually had three years in a row, and my bank said this is unprecedented, where our inventory ties out perfectly. Because they send auditors in from the outside. I mean, they don't take my word for it. They send auditors in and they count the inventory, and it was all there. It's all there. Every single tire is there. So it's possible, even my bank said very unprecedented, very unusual, very unexpected. But when you're honest, when you're honest and you're dutiful and you pay attention to details, you know, you don't have to lose your inventory. And I have that kind of a partner, and God bless him and thank God for me having him in my life. Rob, happy Thanksgiving. But half of our inventory that we're financing as the American people for 22 years, half the inventory is disappearing. Where do you think it's going? Is it too fanciful for me to believe that there's a secret government? as Senator Inouye was saying in the last podcast, that has its own Navy and its own Air Force, that it doesn't care about the rules or the Constitution or the elected officials that prance around on the political theater stage acting like they're men, acting like they're men. Because what a real man would do is they'd get to the bottom of where that money is because they represent us. But no, instead of that, they stand up and act like tough guys. You know, what would be really tough is if they would force the government to root out the corruption and the thievery and the disharmony and the disreputable behavior that leads to half, that be $2 trillion, of inventory disappearing. It is such a staggering problem. Because where do those weapons go? You know, if somebody steals a tire, they take it, they sell it for a cut rate price, and it goes on somebody's vehicle. Okay, these are weapons of war that are being stolen. Who do you think these get sold to? The Little Sisters of the Poor? The Jesuits? The Hasidics? People that are devoted to peace? No, they're sold to criminals to terrorists. They f- this is used to fund and to finance and to pursue illegal wars. And people make money on this. I mean, it's not like they give it away. They steal it from me and you, and then they sell it at a cut rate price. This is a mafia organization. This is the most dangerous thing I've ever said. I'm blowing the whistle on the theft of weapons at a galactic level this is a galactic theft and we're sitting here as American people accepting this and we're laughing about it and then we get the talking heads on television and said there's nothing we can do about it there's nothing we can do about this we just have to watch unseen unknown forces rob us of half of our military hardware and then we all throw our hands up and say oh, it need to get better for the last 22 years You know, it's hard not to swear. It really is. I'm thankful that God has given me the eyes to see this and the ears to hear this and a tongue to share with you that we must demand of ourselves participation in politics because our lack of participation is allowing evil people to steal our energy and use it to kill the innocent. And that's on us. That's on you, and it's on me. And this is why I'm podcasting. This is why we have Free People Radio. And this is why we're asking for your support. But what I'm really asking for you is to please talk to your friends, your neighbors. Let them know that half of the Pentagon's assets cannot be found. It's like you went in your garage And your lawnmower was gone. Somebody took it. Let's find out who stole these weapons. Let's find out who got these weapons. Where is all this money? As we go broke, they're running up the bill. They're going to take everything we have, and they're taking it for themselves. It's not like this is a group effort where we're all benefiting together. A small group of criminals is robbing us. They're robbing me. I'm a man. I will not be robbed. But you know, some of the people that they get to represent this thievery, to uh, disguise it, oh, they're such nice people. And I'm thinking about my Senator Amy Klobuchar here in Minnesota. She's such a nice person to me. I, w- I look at her, and when I look at her objectively, I go, why do you like her? And I keep asking myself, why do I like her? Well, I found out why. In my memory, many years ago, when I was very young, in my 20s, I was in a... Um, well, I was at McAllister College. I was at a um, at their music department, and I was practicing piano. I used to go there because I'd been a student there, and I liked their practice rooms. And they had grand pianos, and I was playing the piano. And I stopped, and I listened. And there was some fantastic piano playing coming down the hall, and I was. There, and I thought, "Wow, who is this? This person is great." And I was a piano player and at the time. I was getting very involved in all kinds of different self-development things. I went down the hall and I met this person who was playing the piano and we became friends. And we're no longer friends. I mean, you can figure out what I'm saying. But I just want to play. This is how the mind works. I kept Amy, Amy, Amy. Well, I had a friend named Amy. Just play this piece because this this is uh, Amy. Play her here. Pop it up. The short piece and this is a you know really quite impressive this is Japanese karate this is a, a woman who was a master piano player and she was um, you know master at uh, this uh, art form which is uh, Shotokan karate and her hairstyle looks like uh, Amy Kulbachar and her name is Amy And, of course, they're both women, and they're both Minnesotans. And I hadn't thought about this, Amy, for decades. And I kept asking myself, why do I have a soft spot for Amy Klobuchar? Because she is the number one salesperson of the military-industrial complex. And I realized I associate in my screwed-up brain, because I want to know, why I think what I think. I was associating this friend of mine who I've lost through time with Amy Klobuchar. Isn't that interesting? But Amy Klobuchar is out there constantly fencing for the military-industrial complex. I mean, it's just constant. She never stops. And we're going to come back to her. But I said I wanted to comment a little bit more on Elon Musk. I couldn't get to all of it last time. And Elon Musk has gotten himself in a huge bind here over anti-Semitism. He affirmed what people are calling an anti-Semitic tweet. And here's what it was. Somebody tweeted, To the cowards hiding behind the anonymity of the Internet and posting, Hitler was right. You got something you want to say? This is the initial user was writing this, and he identified himself as a Jewish conservative. Why don't you say it to our faces? And in response, another ex-user texted, Jewish communities have been pushing the exact kind of dialectical hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them. I am deeply disinterested in giving the tiniest shit now about Western Jewish populations coming to the disturbing realization that those hordes of minorities that they support flooding into our country don't exactly like them too much. The user continued adding, You wanted the truth said to your face, and there it is. And Musk tweeted, You have said the actual truth. And the world's gone wild. And I you know, I find myself looking at this and I don't want to get caught up in the weeds of the anti-Semitism or lack thereof of the anti-Semitism, but I will say, as a participant in modern Jewish culture, that Jews are mostly liberal, Jews mostly support immigration for a whole range of reasons. And you know, Jews are understanding that when you let in hordes of people, that are anti-Semitic, oh, that's a problem. They're kind of waking up to this now. And this was a dialogue about this, and Musk did not have to weigh in, but he did. Because what he's saying is these hordes of people, and they're really, let's be honest, they're talking about Islamic people. So it's anti-something in a lot of different directions. Why would Musk do this? Why would he say you have said the actual truth? Well, for one thing, because it is true, because I'm walking around in my neighborhood, and as I was saying in the last episode, we've got a slumlord that's got a house full of Islamic recent immigrants. I'm sure none of them are here legally because they're hiding, and they sit on their lawn chairs in their front yard smoking Marlboros, and I walk by, and they glare at me. So I know that, you know, this this is a real deal. But he didn't have to weigh in on this. Why did he do it? So, like, I'm thinking about, why do I like Amy Klobuchar? And I'm I'm, I'm thinking, why did Musk do this? And I go back and I look at Musk's history. You know, he has a father that he's deeply estranged from. They don't talk. And his father was a politician. Now, I'm making this up. You know, I'm entitled to come up with a story. This is a pure story. I'm just going to give you a story. This is context. This is speculation. And I always like to say when Professor Penn's making up a story, because I really don't know what's really going on here. But I look back at his history, and I can see a story that's similar to mine. He really does not get along with his parents, with his father. They're deeply estranged. They don't talk. And his father was a politician. In fact, he got elected to, to government in South Africa. And he was elected to the Pretoria City Council in 1972. And he was deeply opposed to apartheid. And he was a member of, this is the father, of the Progressive Federal Party of South Africa, which was a party that was led by Jewish immigrants, Jews in name only. They were not practicing Jews. They were Marxist Jews, cultural Jews, Marxists, that left Europe and came to South Africa. And they went all over the world And, you know, this is Bolshevism that went all over the world. So, you know, cultural Jews are associated with this Marxist movement in many countries. And he really disliked his father. And his father was involved in what was essentially a Bolshevik uh, anti apartheid party. And his father actually said subsequently that he was opposed to apartheid, but now in the fullness of history, even though apartheid has been overturned, which was a terrible scourge, South Africa is not as safe or as good a country as it was during apartheid. I mean, this is kind of mind-boggling, right? And so here's Elon Musk growing up in South Africa, which was a deeply racist country, which was a, had Nazi parties in it, and there was a battle in that country between, you know, Nazis that came out of the European experience, and Bolsheviks, who were cultural Jews, that came out of the European experience, and they're battling it out for control of the country. And here's the young Elon, and he's looking at it. I'm making up a story now. I'm making up a story. And apartheid was overthrown, and he doesn't talk to his father, and his father says, yes, we overthrew apartheid, but the country's been destroyed. And here's Elon looking at You know, Bolshevism, because the the current government in South Africa is Marxist. You know, Nelson Mandela was a Marxist. And he's looking at it and he's saying, you know, South Africa's crap. And I had to get out of there. And his father emigrated; Everybody left. And here he's affirming a tweet that's saying that these hordes of immigrants that are coming into the country are not making the country better and that Jews are recognizing that these immigrants don't like them. And all I'm trying to say is there are psychological reasons that we have to look into about why we act the way we act. Now, I don't know if what I'm saying about Elon is true or false. I'm going to say it a third time. I'm making up a story. But relative to Amy Klobuchar, I know I have a soft spot for her. has nothing to do with her. Let me just read what she recently tweeted. Recently, the world is watching. Ukraine has recaptured 50% of the territory Russia invaded last year. I've spoken with many of my colleagues this weekend. The vast majority of senators do not favor cutting off support. I stand with democracy here and abroad. Okay, let's take a look at this short, Elia Klobuchar on the Ukraine
3: crowd was nearly all the Senators, Democrats and Republicans were there. I did not detect that gnawing away of support. I see a Senate that passed with 86 of 100 Senators voting for the defense bill. I see Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer standing together for Ukraine, and then later this afternoon Uh, at the archives, where no lost symbolism there, where he's, where the Constitution Declaration of Independence, you see President Zelensky declaring that Ukrainians are defending freedom and global security every day and every night, and kids are there, and soldiers without legs, children without hands, and the American doctors that have fixed them, that have made their lives better, that have given them prosthetics. It was very emotional, people were crying, and I saw every bit of emotion that I saw in the past. In fact, stronger resolve, as we know, China is watching right now. The crowd was nearly all the senators.
1: That's good. You know, this contradiction. Let's arm the Ukrainians. They get their arms and legs blown off, and then American doctors get to repair the damage. I mean, this is ridiculous. And I realized, looking at her hairdo, the reason I got a soft spot for her is because I have a soft spot f- for a- the Amy that I was involved with in the 1980s. This is how goofy my brain is. This woman is saying that the Ukrainians are winning. She's a U.S. senator. But let's listen to what's really going on. Let's check out the real situation. Let's. Now, Professor Penn has been saying this for months. Ukraine's lost this war. Oh, finally. Our intelligence is going to have to admit the truth, please.
4: NATO's done an extraordinary job. How much longer uh, do we continue uh, pushing? I think uh, what what many people in the Pentagon would think is the unrealistic goal of Ukraine driving every last Russian uh, out of out of their country.
6: It's exactly the right. Uh, question, Joe, and what concerns me is when people get disillusioned and increasingly come to the, con- what you, where you and I are, that as desirable as it is, it's simply not feasible, they're going to increasingly say, and we're hearing it in the House, we're hearing it in parts of Europe, why should we keep doing this? We're already stretched, we're trying to support Israel, we're worried about Taiwan, uh, and even if we give everything we need to give or want to give to Ukraine, it still won't lead to success. What I argue, therefore, is the United States needs to have some very uh, direct conversations with Ukraine, with President Zelensky. Talk about reducing their emphasis on liberating land, increasingly put all their emphasis on holding on to what they've got. In the long run, diplomatically through sanctions, yes, we can try to see the rest of their territory return. But for right now, let's have 80 percent of this country safe, 80 percent of this country uh, rebuilt. I would actually propose a ceasefire as an interim arrangement to expose the Russians for what they uh, are so we can rebuild support for Ukraine in, in this country. But it's, uh, it, we've had two fighting seasons. The idea that one or two or three more years of this is going to result in success, I simply don't see it. Russia's on a war footing. They have access also to arms from North Korea and Iran. So I just think, you know, any time in foreign policy, any time in life, there's a big gap between what you're trying to do and your ability to do it, you've either got to right. uh, increase your means or lower your goals. And I think here the only realistic option as a tactical measure is to lower our goals.
4: Well, you know, Caddy, the situation uh, is often fluid, has been fluid in Ukraine for quite some time. Uh, but we're at a new stage, just like, just like we talked about after uh, October 7th. Uh, that war was going to go in stages the ukrainian war has gone in stages and now russia is dug in defensively they're not having generals run up to the line uh, so snipers can can take them out they're not exposing themselves to aerial bombardment they are dug in in a defensive posture and that has made all the difference and how quickly or how slowly those lines are moving.
7: Yeah, the Russians had enough time as Ukraine was preparing this offensive to build those defensive lines uh, with trenches and landmines and making it very difficult for the uh, Ukrainians to push through. I was told recently that the Ukrainians have only taken back 0.25 percent of the land that Russia took in the east of the country. That is nothing Uh, and clearly not nearly enough to persuade policymakers um, up on Capitol Hill that it's worth carrying on funding them. Now, the Europeans are actually now matching the Americans when it comes to to military spending on Ukraine, but they wouldn't be able to pick up all of the slack. I, I guess the only question with what you're proposing, Richard, is that would that then look like victory for Vladimir Putin? I mean, effectively... Uh, he'll be able to sell that, and he will sell that as victory back at home. But even if we step back with a more objective eye and think, well, okay, so they didn't take Kiev, but they took a big chunk of the country in the east, and, and was this an indication that the Russians actually won effectively?
6: I don't think so. Look where Russia started. They wanted to basically eliminate Ukraine as a sovereign, independent...
1: West- okay, so there's Amy Klobuchar pitching a war talking about 50% of territory reclaimed by the Ukrainians, a lie. And now the truth's coming out. So how can I have a soft spot for this lady? She's a salesperson like Tom Emmer. I guess Minnesota's got a lot of great political salespeople, they peddle lies. You know, I I don't know, I mean, we just do. Uh, Maybe it's because we're a liberal state and the contradictions of liberalism are coming into clear view This war has been lost for a very long time. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed because we, the people, have let this go on. We have no idea how much kit's gone over there because half the inventory's gone. So whatever we, the people, are authorizing through our elected officials, that's got nothing to do with reality because reality is half the weapons are missing. Where did they go? And even with all of that potentiality, the Russians have prevailed. And now our Morning Joe crowd, which is the railhead of the Democrat liberal order and the New World Order here in the United States, Mika Brzezinski, the daughter of Zygmunt Brzezinski, who is the architect of the whole scam, uh, they're on there saying it's coming to an end. Coming to an end. The truth shall set us free. But, you know, hey, there's other battles to fight. Let's play this last piece, because now that I've sorted out why I like Amy Klobuchar, I don't have to like her anymore. I realize it's my friend Amy. They had the same hairdo. Look at the same hairdo. Let's play this next one.
3: Thank you. Chloe. Thank you.
0: Good evening, Senator. Thank you.
6: After over a decade of service and being wounded in combat, In 2019, a message was sent that transgender service members aren't qualified to serve. If elected, will you commit to overturning President Trump's transgender military ban and providing gender-affirming health care for all trans service members? Yes.
3: Uh, And I think we should. I want to thank you for your service and uh, what you've done for our country. And I just can't imagine what this is like uh, uh, when you made a decision uh, to put your life on the line, um, to um, be there for our country. And I figure when uh, we, our soldiers, have signed up to serve, when people sign up to serve, there isn't a waiting line. And when they come home to the United States of America, they need health care, they need education, they need a job, uh, and including our LGBTQ trans communities, there shouldn't be a waiting line. You should get the help that you need. Um, So I just want to thank you for your service. I thought this was one of the most mean-spirited things in a panoply of mean-spirited things that this president has done. But to say this to people that simply want to serve our country um, is something that literally can be reversed like that as long as you guys all vote. Mm. So, thanks.
1: Okay. Well, Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, We've gone through some uh, difficult things that if we really come to grips with the fact that half the inventory is missing, half. If we were the bank, we would foreclose on this business called the Pentagon. If my bank came in and counted my inventory and half of it was gone, not only would they foreclose my business, I would go to jail for theft. Where are the criminals? I mean, this is so mind-boggling. So let's leave that and enjoy a closing few minutes together where I'm going to try to just be myself with you, like we're sitting around after Thanksgiving talking with each other. And uh, we're going to talk about visions of masculinity, and I want to start out by saying, I actually come from a family. Now, like many of you, family's not the same for me as it was when I was a kid because my grandmother, for example, who made Thanksgiving every year, she had 11 brothers and sisters. Her husband, my grandfather, had a big family also. And then they all had kids and then they all had kids. So when we got together for Thanksgiving, You know, you needed a convention center, and my grandmother would cook and prepare for days. I mean, we had appetizers. She used to make meatballs for appetizers and chopped liver. For those of us that are Jewish, we know that liver is a big deal. She used to hand grind it. I used to grind it. We had schnapps and Canadian whiskey because, you know, nobody was really a connoisseur of Alcohol, it was, uh, you know, it was people didn't have a lot of money. But we had enough money to have a big Thanksgiving, big table. They, I mean, it was just incredible. And we'd have chickens and turkeys and salads and carrot molds and potatoes. And it was just incredible, just go and go and go. And then we would actually sit and talk and hang out. Not everybody. You know, my mother was a communist. She didn't get along with most of these people. So it wasn't smooth sailing. But there was a lot of people that had good feelings about each other. And I was a young person. I loved going there. It was just great. It's really a wonderful memory. In fact, my grandmother would make Friday night, what we call Shabbat or Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, we'd have every Friday night. We'd have a Sabbath dinner with the same crew. This was a regular thing. This was family. Family. I mean, I'm talking about dozens of people. Dozens, every week, getting together, caring about each other. Many of these people worked in businesses together. This was an era of America that's gone. Social Security was relatively new. None of these people trusted the government. They took care of each other. They took care of each other. These people were involved in everything together. They ate together. They partied together. They went on vacations together. They work together they were community a community based on family this kinda thinking is mostly gone It's mostly gone but I remember it and it's part of me and it's a wonderful memory and it was a different time you know there's a big there's even a series of movies about barbershops in the black community Well, you know what we had a barbershop in the white community and I used to go there with my father my father used to like to get a haircut every Saturday don't ask me why I'm not sure. I can't get in his head. But I would speculate since we'd go there about, I don't know, 11 o'clock, and we wouldn't come home till 4, and we'd drink coffee and hang out with everybody, there was something going on there besides cutting hair. It was a community. It was a community gathering place. And I remember the name of my barber. His name was Henry Stanfus. I'm sure he's been dead for decades because he was pretty old when he was cutting my hair. And I would hop up into the barber chair, which is kind of a manly thing. If you think about it, you know, I wasn't even 13 years old. I was still a kid. And everybody in the place was a man. I was the only kid in there. These guys were playing cards. They were drinking. They were talking. It was a community gathering, and I got to hang around with the older people. It was cool. And I'd get up in the chair, and I'd look and mount it up on a a display case, was a small black-and-white television. A small black-and-white television. And, Elia, I'd like you to play for my listeners and viewers what I got to see. Sorry, there's no words to describe this. You're gonna to have to get it on a video. With this level of steel today as I was when I was eight, nine years old. A scene. When he was young, he was unhittable. Look at that. What movement. This man was playing at a completely different level. And the fury, the savagery, This guy wasn't faking fighting. He was fighting, putting it all on the line. Bravery. Centering. Timing. Focus. Endurance. He'd hit from any direction. No mold could contain this. and couldn't hit him. So, I hope you enjoyed that. I still enjoy it. I I shiver from it. My father would take me to that barber shop, and there was a show on in those days called The Wide World of Sports. It was hosted by a very famous broadcaster named Howard Cosell, who hitched his wagon to Muhammad Ali. My reason for playing this is, uh, first of all, just to share it with you, because I think a lot of people are letting this guy go just like James Brown. This was integral to the self-image, not just of black people, but of people. I went on a 30-year quest after watching this to learn how to fight, defend myself. I mean, I boxed for years. People laugh at me. Well, I'm old. Hey, you know what? I can still box. In fact, I run around my neighborhood shadow boxing for hours every week because I still prize that movement. It feels so good to be free like that, to be centered, to be coordinated, to be quick. But Muhammad Ali was so much more. He was so great. He was a force in nature and I thank God I actually saw it with my own eyes. The change that this man brought to human culture is unquantifiable because it was not just his athletics. I'm just going to play um, some this next piece where he's uh, actually talking about critical issues.
5: Fly together. The buzzers, everything hangs out with his own. White people, culture is different from black people. Puerto Ricans and Indonesians cannot integrate. Egyptians and Germans cannot integrate. Australians and Mexicans cannot integrate. They have different foods, they have different music, different cultures. See, you white and I'm black. If white people have a party tonight and black people have a party, the party will be 100% different. The music. I go in a white restaurant, we integrate day white. Right? You go in a white restaurant, you got to look all day on the jukebox to find some music. No, no, no. It, at our inter- party, we'll have Aretha Franklin, Stevie me, Wonder, let you, and. Let me, let me tell you now, if I go. Prayer jukebox in the white restaurant, anybody black Italian here, you gotta look all over that box for some black music. Hank Snow, uh, uh, Johnny Cash, uh, all kinda, white. All yeah. kind of names I ain't never heard of. You know, <laughs> when that train comes around that mountain, <laughs> when that train, 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 train comes, and that truck's driving around there. So what I'm saying is, uh 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 ain't never with that music, but that fits the white culture. You go in our joints, oh baby, don't leave. <laughs> uh, oh, I cried all night. Who's that running out of my back door, honey? <laughs> oh, oh. But see, those our problems. Then I go to Chinese restaurant, clean ting, tang tong, tong, ting. <laughs> so we can't integrate. Yeah. We ain't gonna never have no peace. The culture, the nature's different. I don't hate you. We can eat in your restaurant. We want to marry your women. We got your women now. It ain't nothing we can't do today. But these things the dog got. I see dogs on television eating out the same plate with white people. I see dogs in the buses, and they do everything with the dogs. So I ain't getting nothing the dog ain't got. <laughs> so really, ain't nothing in this integration. I need some land. I need some jobs. My people need jobs. We need some something so we can build and do for ourselves. And we must have some land. But Forty million people. You know, it's a lot of Negroes just in New York, in Cleveland, Baltimore, Washington, California. It's a lot of black. Ooh, that's million. a whole nation. Forty million, man. They don't tell the truth about that. They want us to stop having babies. They give us 20 million. They're paying black women not to have babies. It's 40 million, not 20 million? Yeah, they're paying black women not to have babies now. They got all kinds of plans to stop our race. Well, we, every so when we know' all this, getting into birth so control, now a not man with black. a man with my knowledge what can you tell a man like me now what what's your suggestion that's your question okay you talking to me not a dumb negro or a poke shop eater that don't know the truth I'm free now I woke up now what are you gonna tell me now i done gave you my solution some land of my own doing something for myself like you England and America do now i know you're not against a black man i know you're not against me having my land are you not i know you English the ruled and slave forever for a long time but do you do you still today don't want me to have my own country and build for myself and govern myself would you think that's bad if we thought like that i what's your solution to my problem 1974 then you all just some white man just flew from new york to england in a hour less than two hours you all are so progressive you're walking around on other planets now today i'm intelligent too now what do you what what's your suggestion what should be my movement integrate Yeah, equal rights in a mixed society. In this society where you still own the government, you still own the train station, the railroad plant, the lecture plant, these television cameras, you still make all the food, you control everything, and I'm like a leech on a dog's back. All I can do is just wait for you. I can't do nothing for myself. Integrating in your society don't mean I'm doing nothing for myself. You're doing it all. I want to do something for myself. I'm tired of depending on you. You might get broke one day. Your stores might close. Your gas pumps might cut off again. I'm relying on you now. Can I have my own land and country? Well, you've got your own freedom here, for instance. I know you're luckier than many black uh, people I'm in America, but meet. you're your own I'm boss. I'm speaking for my nation. See, I know, I appreciate If I was that. representing just me, I wouldn't be talking like this, because I got it made. Mm-hmm. I'm talking for my brothers. But I, I to just don't see, how, Mohammed, I don't, don't see how, Ma'am, I don't see how you can slice up America into bits yeah, and get well, all the whites in one area and all the blacks well, in then another. I mean, then we leave, then. We get to we leave But they'd miss you. I know it. One last question. At the end of your life, whether it was Allah who was saying it, Elijah Muhammad, or whether it was something that someone wrote about you after you'd gone, what's the thing you would most like people to say about your life? He was a great champion or what? What would you like people to think about you when you've gone? I'd like for them to say he took a few cups of love. He took one tablespoon of patience, one tablespoon, teaspoon of generosity, One pint of kindness. He took one quart of laughter, one pinch of concern, and then he mixed willingness with happiness. He added lots of faith and he stirred it up well. Then he spread it over a span of a lifetime and he served it to each and every deserving person he met.
4: Muhammad Ali, thank you very much.
1: So there it is self governance. The issues discussed by Muhammad Ali, decades ago, he raised these issues to a young man, David Penn, Professor Penn now. It's been on my mind since I saw this, the first time live, since I watched him move in groove, and listen to James Brown, I said, wow, there's something really here, cultural diffusion. Cultural diffusion, what can we learn from one another? How can we come together through learning, through communicating, through study? I've just been so influenced by this Muhammad Ali, and I just wanted to share with you as a happy Thanksgiving, because it's such a happy memory. My family was together. We had communal meals. We had Muhammad Ali. We had all these problems were going on, but we had hope. We had hope because Muhammad Ali elevated everyone who was alive. Think about that. This is my opinion, but I'm going to say, because I was there, the entire world was elevated. So I want to go out. I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. We're going to go out with another great boxer, Mike Tyson, who was also supernatural, but with a kind of ferocity that was quite unsettling, talking about Floyd Mayweather and Muhammad Ali. And I'm going to leave you with this. What he's saying is greatness, greatness is for us to define. Tyson is going to define it for me. And he, Tyson, Mike Tyson, now a philosopher, formerly a ferocious boxer who scared people, white people, scared them now he's become this phenomenal philosopher talking about what it is to be great. I want to leave you with this, and I, I'm going to think about it, because this is when I say I'm setting the bar high. I want us all to set the bar high. Thank you very much for joining, and let's go out and join enjoying Mike Tyson together. What oh. do you think about uh, Floyd
7: talking about, Brady Alley?
1: He, he he's very delusional.
5: He can't listen. Um, if he if he was anywhere near that um, that realm of greatness, he'd be able to take his kids to school by himself. Okay. He can't take he can't take his kids to school by himself. And he talking about he's great. Greatness is not guarding yourself from the people. Greatness is being accepted by the people. He can't take his kids alone to to school by himself. He's a little scared man. He's a very small scared man. Thank you,